Could I, as usual, encourage you to have your Bibles open at uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be particularly looking at uh, the first five chapters, uh, first five chapters, first five verses, first five verses of chapter three. And I commend to you the, the, the handout with the comments from other writers on this passage. Let's pray. Father, you have spoken. We pray that you might grant to us ears to hear and eyes to see some of the wonderful things contained in your word and that your spirit would bring them home to each of us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Connect to the internet and you'll receive all sorts of mail. And uh, if you're anything like me, you would have at one stage received emails from individuals who had millions and millions of dollars that they were just waiting to share with you. One of them uh, went like this. I think they've passed their use-by date now. But one of them went like this. It said it was purported to come from the Treasury Director of the Central Bank of Nigeria. Uh, and the email said it was pleased to advise me of a, of a part payment of $15 million that was just ready to be made. All I had to do was give them my personal and financial details and it would all just flow. Then there, of course, uh, there were other types of emails promising all sorts of things, not, not buckets of money necessarily, but incredible mind-blowing experiences, for example. There was one which said that I could travel to the Golden City, which is just outside Chennai in India, and I could, I could attend the Experience Festival. And there were all sorts of workshops where I could undergo all sorts of experiences of mind and body and spirit. And if that wasn't enough, I could continue on to the World University of Consciousness. And there I could study verdict astrology or fruitarianism or really whatever. Now, what would your reaction be if I said I had responded positively to those emails? Shake your heads, exactly. That I really thought that I'd get some of those millions, that that I'd enrolled in the World University of Consciousness and was studying fruitarianism. Well, yes, you may have shaken your heads. Others of you, perhaps your more polite reactions might have been, oh, you foolish man. Oh, you foolish man. Well, what was it that caused the apostle to regard these Galatians as foolish and we need to examine these first five verses of chapter 3 to find out. Uh, and we have there um, John that Paul reveals his exasperation, first of all, and that that leads Paul on to, to recall or to restate his exposition of the gospel. And then thirdly, to uh, Paul gets the Galatians to uh, reflect upon their experience. Paul is 
clearly exasperated, isn't he? You foolish Galatians. Uh, And this word, this particular word, which is translated here, foolish, indicates a lack of thought, a failure to use their brains, an absence of wisdom. So that's why most translations use the English word foolish. There are others who say, uh, translated as senseless, or even stupid, or thoughtless. And J.B. Phillips, in his uh, uh, more idiomatic translation, he says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. New Testament Greek, by the way, has four words for foolish. Four words for foolish. And the word Paul uses here uh, is, as I said earlier, only used three times in the New Testament. Uh, There's that one where Jesus on the road to Emmaus says to those unbelieving disciples, Oh, of foolish people and slow of heart to believe. It's used in Romans chapter 1 where Paul talks about the foolishness of men and here it's used for the third time. It's different, therefore, from the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 verse 22 in that Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, that's one of the words for, or it's a Hebrew word for foolish, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. In other words, it's not a nice word. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Well, raka is equivalent to to stupid, pretty much. And fool is, I suppose we would, might even say, moron. So it's a very derogatory term. But it's not the word that Paul is using here. Paul's word seems to fall somewhere in between those others in meaning. It's a word to be used to express exasperation. And it's an exasperation, let's not forget, that's born out of love. An exasperation that's born out of love. And that's, that's something that parents can relate to, isn't it? We've taught our children to do the right thing, yet they still get into trouble. And our reaction, even as we hug them, because they've been in trouble even though they knew the right thing. You might say, oh, you you hug them and you say, oh, you foolish little boy. But to be very equal, oh, you foolish little girl. It happens either way. Perhaps, perhaps it's particularly noticeable in their teenage years. They've been warned about getting mixed up with the wrong crowd and they learn the hard way. And our reaction as we console them, well... We might well use the word foolish, but it's a word that's said as an expression of love as well. And Paul's love explains his exasperation. These Galatians, they are his Christian brothers. He calls them his brothers twice, in, in, later in chapter 3 and then in chapter 4. And then in chapter 4, he also refers to these Galatians as his little children. But they are his foolish brothers and his foolish children. When do we show exasperation? Well, we show exasperation when someone who knows better doesn't act in that better way. Isn't that when we get exasperated? And that's why Paul asks, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Now, there are shows on TV that include spells and incantations and the like, and they may or may not be harmless. You probably have your own views on that. 
you, some of you of my generation and older and younger perhaps you would remember there was a show that was actually called Bewitched. But Paul is not here using a word uh, that indicates any sort of harmlessness. He's, talking, he's using it in the word that, that is, indicates it's harmful. It's related to a concept that was taken very seriously. It conveyed the idea of casting a magic spell with the intention of harming a person through an evil eye. And doesn't that sound similar to, uh, to the Aboriginal practice of, of pointing the bone? And, of course, there are many other occult practices as well. Now, the New King James Version, though not the NIV, the one we have in front of us, explains in what way the Galatians have been bewitched. You see here, it's just the question is, who has bewitched you? But in the New King James, it says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? And without stating which particular truth he has in mind, these words give more substance, don't they, to Paul's exasperation. Are we exasperated when our children, or perhaps grandchildren, fail to, to do what they know they should? Well, that being so, let's see what truth it is that these Galatians have jettisoned. And the jettisoned truth begins in the second half of verse 1. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. That's the truth that they're in danger of, of ignoring, of putting to one side. And the parallel truth, that is, uh, the role of faith from the beginning to the end of the Christian life, is interwoven with that through the questions that we'll come to in verses 2 to 5. Well, how should we understand this, this statement of Paul's that uh, this portrayal of Jesus Christ took place before your very eyes? These people live in, in Galatia. They weren't in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified. So how could it take place before their very eyes? Well, the explanation seems to be that there, there are some people who can tell stories in such a way that you feel you're actually there. Arabs apparently have a proverb which says, he who is the best orator who can turn men's ears into eyes. And the great 18th century preacher George Whitfield was one such according to Bishop J.C. Ryle, and he relates this. Uh, remember, this is the 18th century, and it's in England. He says, on one occasion, Lord Chesterfield, one of the members of the House of Lords, Lord Chesterfield was among Whitfield's hearers. I mean, huge crowds. We often hear of Wesley, but the huge crowds came to hear Whitfield as well. Uh, and they didn't have audiovisuals or anything else like that. They just had the, the power of the word. And Whitfield, in describing the miserable condition of an unconverted sinner, illustrated the subject by describing a blind beggar. The night was dark, the road dangerous. The poor beggar was deserted by his dog near the edge of a cliff, and he had nothing to guide him on his way but his walking stick. 
And Whitfield got so warmed up to his subject and enforced it with such graphic power, only by the use of words, that the whole congregation was kept in breathless silence, as if it saw the movements of the poor old man. Just when the beggar was about to take the fatal step which would have hurled him over the cliff to his desk below, Lord Chesterfield, one of those people listening to Whitfield speak, Lord Chesterfield, and you know, someone who's way up in the social scale, he actually made a rush forward in the crowd and he called out, he's gone, he's gone. Paul is saying, when I preached to you people in Galatia, I painted a word picture that left you in no doubt as to who Jesus was and what he'd done and why he'd done it. And so we can, we can paraphrase uh, verse 1 in this way. He says, the unbelievable has happened. You Galatians, you've had the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ preached to you clearly and unambiguously with an emphasis on his substitutionary death upon the cross in the place of sinners. And you believed it. But now someone has infiltrated your ranks and caused you to depart from these truths. It's so unbelievable that your behaviour can only be described as foolish. Now, can we all think of that? Can we not all think of that in this way? That, that these churches, they'd been established by none other than Paul himself. And yet here they were, here they were already, already departing from the truth. Who could believe it? But brethren, if it could happen then, it can happen now. And it does, and it has. I mean... Who would have believed, say, 30 years ago, that otherwise intelligent people would take the occult so seriously? And then people with university degrees and so on, they, they get involved in the occult. Who would have believed it? Who would have believed that, that the churches professing the Christian faith would not just debate the ordination of homosexuals, but actually endorse it and allow it to happen? I read somewhere, and I ask it in the way of a question, who would believe that the, the University of Queensland would grant a doctorate to a man who wrote his thesis on Christ as a homosexual? Do you know who paid for his research costs? Well, it came out of public funds. We'd be foolish, wouldn't we, to think that if in Paul's day they could depart from the truth, it couldn't happen in our day. Questions are often the best way to bring out a truth, aren't they? Or to put things into focus. And to bring their foolishness home to them, Paul launches into a series of questions in verses 2 to 5. He asks them about their own experiences. On what basis, he asks, did you become Christians? On what basis, he asks, do you continue as Christians? On what basis, he asks, were you prepared to suffer? On what basis, he asks, is God working in your midst? 
Uh, and in fact, you know, to, to ask the questions is to answer them almost, isn't it? First question, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Well, just like I tried with the youngsters, there's only one obvious answer, isn't it? By believing. Second question, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Well, if the answer is yes, then they're really saying, yes, Paul, we are foolish. Third question, have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Well, surely their answer was, oh, no, no, it wasn't for nothing. And fourth question, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And they know that the answer is, well, because of what we believed or because we believed what we heard. I have mentioned before Peter Barnes, who's a minister in Reesby in, in the outer suburbs of Sydney. He's a lecturer in church history at the Theological College in Sydney. Uh, if you received Australian Presbyterian, he often had the, the back page, had an article by him. He, he puts, and he's written a commentary on, on Galatians. And he puts it like this. He says, Paul's appeal in these questions is straightforward. He's saying that a person receives the Holy Spirit when he's justified. When you become a Christian, when you are justified, that's when you receive the Holy Spirit. And all Christians have the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, he says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive it by circumcision? No. Remember that the Galatians were Gentiles and would not have been circumcised. Well, what about by keeping the Ten Commandments? No, because all men are sinners and none of us have kept them in their entirety. Well, what about through keeping holy days or through baptism or through speaking in tongues or through being raised as Presbyterians or as Baptists? No, 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 no to all of those. There's only one correct answer by believing what you heard by believing what you heard. You see, the experience of the Galatians was in fact no different than the experience of Cornelius, who we read about in Acts chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago. You notice how the argument ran there? Cornelius was a Gentile who had not been circumcised. In fact, he hadn't been baptised either, yet he was converted and received the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who gave him his faith and it was through that faith that he received the Holy Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit who was with him not only at the beginning of his Christian life but also at its end and at all times in between. The life I live, I live by faith. Not by faith or something else or faith and something else but I live by faith. And what was true for Cornelius was true for the Galatians and it's true for us who are Christians today. If our Christian life begins in the spirit, which it does, how could we possibly gain our goal through human effort? There's only one correct answer, isn't there? Now, of course, experience has its place and it's a very important place 
in the life of the Christian. But experience to be genuine must be in line with God's revealed truth in the scripture. Experience doesn't guarantee the truth. God's word guarantees the truth. And John Stott put it wisely when he said, experience must never be the criterion of truth. Truth must always be the criterion of experience. Because you you may have come across people who said, oh, God told me to do this, or God's leading me to do that. And yet it may be in clear contrast to what the scripture says is or is not allowable for a Christian. And that's exactly the point that Paul is making. The gospel is the truth and their experiences must grow out of the truth of the gospel. And it's to the truth of scripture as they're demonstrated in the life of Abraham that we turn to, or which Paul turns to next. Do you see, uh, here's the title of next week's message, God willing. Consider Abraham. That's how verse 6 starts. Consider Abraham. And that's what I pray, God willing, we will be doing. But for the present, let's think of it, think of all of this in this way. Were Paul to write to us, would he have to say, O foolish Karangians? I can't think of a better way of saying it. But would he have to say, O foolish people of Karang? Who has bewitched you when before your very eyes Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified? Would he have to say that? Oh, may it never be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that the truths of the gospel are so so crystal clear, so straightforward, so understandable. We pray that you might grant to each of us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that faith to believe, to believe what you have said in your word and to stick by that, not to deviate from it, but to remain true to it all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.